Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kavadek and Sean Karnikian. Sean, say hello to everybody. Hello, everyone. We're coming to you once again from lockdown, day 747. Nope, it's it's just been a couple of weeks, but it feels like that. It does feel like that. We're in remote, undisclosed locations. Um, and we have an interesting set of cases today on Civil Action where we cover different topics and cases that come down uh and we're trying to organize these by topic so you can kind of drill into one issue in every episode and today what's our topic brian or what's our theme our theme is what to do when you're stuck at home for 747 days that's yeah i guess that's an overarching theme for the last few episodes we've done but today we're going to talk about cases that have to do with arbitration so i guess our theme is when we just thought arbitration was the worst thing we confronted in our practices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, they, these are a bunch of arbitration cases and uh, we, we picked four of them, which kind of vary from um, issue to issue and deal with sort of the, the, the issues that we confront with when it comes to arbitration. So Sean, briefly, what are the cases that we're covering? So we're covering four cases. One of them has to do with browse wrap arbitration agreements, like when you download an app or something, and the enforceability of those. Uh, Then we're going to talk about binding a third-party beneficiary to uh, an an arbitration provision in a contract and whether or not and how you can do that. Um, Then we're going to talk about using uh, or the inability to use uh, an arbitration award from another case in a uh, different case. And lastly, we're going to talk about condo associations and arbitration provisions and when they're uh, often found unconscionable in those types of contexts. Great. So our first case today is Wilson versus huge, huge. And and Brian says that because huge is not because he has a speech impediment or something uh, or he's having a stroke live on air, but because huge has three U's in it or four U's. Right. And it's out of the Ninth Circuit. Um, And the facts of this case um, are sort of typical of modern life in the third decade of the 20th century. Right. Um, This is a just happens to be an online gambling site, but it could be any online product that you download an app through the App Store or through any other means. And the plaintiff in this case brought a class action. Um, saying effectively, this is sort of the whole case is sort of funny because uh, the plaintiff in this case downloaded the use of this particular app, which is an online gambling casino called Huge Casino, right? And uh, I guess used it for a while and then decided to file a class action saying he was unaware that it was gambling. And it violates laws. Yeah. Gambling's illegal. And it reminds me of that scene in Casablanca, if any of you've ever seen it, where he comes out and says, There's gambling in this establishment. I'm shocked. Shocked. But he does file this class action and they move to compel arbitration on the grounds that he entered into an arbitration agreement. And they start going through an analysis of when these types of arbitration agreements are enforceable, because, you know, I'm sure you know by now that every one of these apps, every service online that you use, every website you sign up at has some type of lengthy, lengthy contract that you in one way or another agree to, or sometimes not agree to. And over here, uh, the Court of Appeal reminds us that there's 
two types of online contracts, and there are two big broad categories. One of them is click wrap agreements, and that requires a user to affirmatively agree or assent to it before they can access the services. So you have to check that box and say, I agree, I accept, in order to go on with the app. If you don't, you just don't get to use the app, too bad. Um, and then there's the browse wrap type of agreements that don't ask you to do that. They exist, they're accessible on the site or in the app somewhere, uh, but you don't necessarily have to agree to it. And here we have a browse wrap type of agreement. So here's what um, Mr. Wilson and presumably anybody else who was using this particular online gambling site had to go through to find out that there was an arbitration agreement. So first of all, there's no mention of an arbitration agreement on the face anywhere. And the court then went on to say that you would have to go to a link to understand all of the rules and terms and conditions of this particular site. But there wasn't even a a, a click-through button. Instead, it was, as they say, it didn't magically conjure the terms. Instead, you had to copy and paste or manually enter the URL into a web browser to get to the terms. So once you got there and used that... um, at any time, you could play the game. So you didn't have no restrictions on playing the game. But once you got to this website, there was something called a kebab menu that you had to click onto. And once you clicked onto that, a pop-up menu of seven options would appear. And one of those options said terms and policies. Again, it didn't even say the word arbitration. And then once you clicked onto that, you would find, and only then would you find the arbitration agreement. So... They said, the first thing the court said is, yes, arbitration agreements under the Federal Arbitration Act are enforceable, but you have to know about them. And the first type of arbitration agreement would be the one that you have actual notice of, and they dismissed that quickly. So then they went on, Sean, to what you're talking about, about constructive notice. Right. They, they look at the browse wrap type, which is something you can come across, but, but um, you know, they have to be able to prove that you actually did or you should have come across it. Over here, actually, as Brian was describing it, uh, describing the process, I thought you'd have to be, be lucky almost to come across this. And that's, that's actually what the term that the court used. They said that only curiosity or dumb luck might bring a user to discover the terms. Yeah, um, the, the Ninth Circuit didn't think very much of their... Um, of the uh, argument here about why the defendant thought they could be compelled, compelled into arbitration, right? Yeah, they have some funny lines in there, like uh, the user would need Sherlock Holmes instincts to discover the terms. Um, and that's true. I mean, but based on the description that Brian just read, it's very difficult to find it and to uh, say that the user had constructive notice or they somehow agreed to those terms is just outrageous. But uh, huge here, the defendant doesn't give up. They say they should be allowed to go do some discovery in their reply. They say they should be allowed to go do some discovery as to whether or not uh, Mr. Wilson here actually saw it and, and whether or not he agreed to it. And the court says that's a little too late, too little too late. Yeah, and and let me predict for you what Mr. Wilson's responses would have been to that uh, that discovery. Just just let me give you a preview into the future what I think those responses. What do, might have what do you think he'd say? I think he would have said no. So um, rule number one to take away from this is browse wrap is almost always facially um, not going to be valid, uh, and unless they can prove that there was actually, and that's your second one there was actual notice that there was effective notice. And and so I don't know how widespread these are, but the court mentioned several examples of um, where uh, terms are buried at the bottom of the page or tucked away 
uh, the, the, the terms are available only if the user scrolls to a different screen, um, a multi-step process of clicking, a parse through confusing, distracting content. And I'm not just rattling these off off the top of my head. These are actually cases they say. But my favorite, some of my favorite lines here in this case, because obviously the Ninth Circuit didn't think much of the defendant's arguments, were terms are not just submerged. They're buried 20,000 leagues under the sea. That's <laughs> one of them, right? Yeah. And then another one is um, that accessibility of these terms during gameplay is similar to a hide-the-ball exercise. And then finally, instead of requiring a user to affirmatively assent, Huge chose to gamble on whether its users would have notice of its terms. Gambling site, right? Funny. Okay. Yeah. So anything else you want to say about that case, Sean, before we move on to our next one? I just say Wilson and Hugh, Wilson B. Huge is a good primer or reminder of those requirements. So anytime you have an arb, arb agreement like this, you're trying to fight, go look at this case. It kind of summarizes all the law around this area. So the next case we're going to cover is Philadelphia Indemnity Insurance Company versus SMG Holdings. And I have to set this up first because it's out of the um, the third DCA out of Sacramento, right? And what is involved in this case is, an, um, first of all, this policy, the insurance company, Philadelphia Indemnity, issued an insurance policy to future farmers of America. You've been involved with them for a long time, haven't you, Sean? Yes, for a very long... No, he's kidding. Uh, no offense to anyone that has been, though. Okay. And next is that the event was at the Fresno Convention Center. So I don't understand how this case ended up in Sacramento as opposed to the 5th DCA. But be that as it may... It was at the Fresno Convention Center, and uh, the the policy though was issued to future farmers of America. But this defendant, SMG Holdings, was an additional named insured, which means what, Sean? Um, they get added on to the policy at the request of the named insured, um, and they're supposed to uh, have the same benefits that the named insured has. Sometimes. Sometimes they, they have less, only limited to what they're insured for. But in this case, the event undisputed is that somebody was in the parking lot, tripped in a pothole, and then hit their head on a car and suffered severe injuries as a result of it. And as a result of that, two years of back and forth between SMG Holdings and the insurance company about whether or not the claim was covered. And, and Philadelphia said, it's not, we're not going to pay, we're not defending, we're not going to provide you with coverage. Right. And, and the, Philadelphia was arguing that the claim's not covered because it happened in the parking lot. So that underscores Brian's point that it depends. Sometimes the additional insured has the same coverage as the named insured. But anyway, after two years of arguing over coverage, uh, Philadelphia files a petition with the court to compel arbitration of the dispute because there is an arbitration agreement in the insurance contract. Um, and the Superior Court denies the petition. They say that SMG the site operator additional insured is not a signatory to the contract between uh, future farmers of America and Philadelphia. So they say that they can't be bound by the terms of the arbitration provision and that Philadelphia is equitably stopped from asserting uh, that clause. Right. And the Court of Appeal disagrees. And the Court of Appeal says, no, they're a third-party beneficiary. They are an additional insured. And the argument that SMG raised, which is, well, you denied coverage, 
So therefore, you can't use the arbitration agreement since you're saying I'm not insured under this policy. You can't use it. In my mind, is circular reasoning. I often don't agree with insurance companies, but this time, at least on this facial issue, it seems that if you're claiming benefits under the agreement, you have to take the burdens of the agreement as well, right? So, right. It was the third-party beneficiary, and the other grounds for uh, reversing was the equitable estoppel. You made a claim for benefits under the policy, you can't now claim that you're not a beneficiary under the policy. Right. The fact that SMG is not the named insured makes no difference because you're trying, as Sean said, to take benefits under the policy, and that's the way it works. Now, the thing, though, I disagree with this case, or maybe was completely missed, is a little-known area involving arbitration. We all know that the Federal Arbitration Act applies, generally speaking, but there are exceptions. And of course, since 2010, it's had a sweeping effect on America with arbitration agreements and enforceability and the inability to bring class action and consumer cases. But most people don't know that there's a federal act called the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which is reverse preemption. And it specifically says that the Federal Arbitration Act does not apply to the business of insurance, and that's left to the individual states so, so can California completely ban arbitration agreements in insurance exactly. companies? Exactly. If if the insurance lobby in Sacramento was not as strong as it is, we could have the state of California pass a law that says any insurer doing business in California cannot have an arbitration agreement in their insurance contract. And that was missed here. Maybe it was a non-issue. Um, it, because what the court said is that SMG didn't dispute the fact that the Arbitration Act applied. Maybe it would have applied in California because there is no such ban. But I think it's always an interesting topic, which is insurance just not subject to the Federal Arbitration Act. So instead, the California rules with respect to arbitration, unconscionability, et cetera, would apply in determining whether it was fair and reasonable to compel a party to uh, arbitrate an insurance dispute. Okay, enough of that case. What's next? Next, we have Barranco versus 3D Systems Corporation. That's out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, originating in Hawaii, which is where I'm sure we'd all like to be quarantined right and now. Which is where the three-judge panel um, of the Ninth Circuit actually made the huge sacrifice to travel to Hawaii, to hear the case in Hawaii, including one of the judges who lives about a mile away from me in Pasadena. And so um, I'm sure it was a huge sacrifice for him. And I want to personally and publicly thank all of them for making the supreme sacrifice of going to Hawaii to, to hear oral argument in this case. Thank you for your service, yes. So the plaintiff here owned several 3D printing businesses. And aside from businesses, he also owned websites, the domain names for these businesses. And 3D Systems Corporation entered into an agreement with him to buy both the businesses and then a separate agreement with him to buy the websites or the domain names. So there was a uh, two disputes here that are really at issue. This the, the case here is about the contract to buy the domain names. But in a separate lawsuit, uh, Bronco and 3D Systems were litigating an issue that had to do with the purchase of the companies, and that one went to arbitration. And the arbitrator over there ultimately found for the plaintiff, for Bronco, and determined that uh, 3D Systems had acted in bad faith and they were blocking him from ever receiving payments under the contract. And he was happy there with that outcome. 
This case here proceeded to trial, and at trial, Bronco, the plaintiff, wanted to introduce evidence of the arbitration award that he had won on the other contract. And the uh, trial court here excluded it uh, completely as irrelevant and uh, alternatively as unduly prejudicial and likely to confuse the jury. So that's where this kind of court of appeal decision uh, uh, takes this, on. This part of the court of appeal, there's other part of the decision which we're not yeah. going to talk about because I don't think it's really relevant for this discussion. But what the, you know, what the court, and I disagreed with the court on this, at least I disagreed with the trial court. The problem is it's reviewed for abuse of discretion. So is it an abuse of discretion to say that this prior arbitration award should have been excluded under 403, you know, more, more prejudicial than probative? I don't know. But I do think that if the key issue in this case was the good faith conduct of this 3D systems or whatever it's called, um, with respect to Bronco. And the arbitrator previously found that the conduct of that particular defendant was not in good faith, that they didn't engage in good faith. There would be, in my mind, some tendency to prove a factor or an issue in the case because it is seems to me to be a cohesive set of negotiations and transactions behind it. Yeah, it's um, the same. It's the same conduct uh, that that gives rise both both these disputes. It's the it's a it's two contracts. Yes, but they were negotiated by the same people at the same time, almost about the same thing, really about the same business too. So I think factually, well, I disagree that it's not, the the plaintiff in the case relied on another uh, case from the Fifth Circuit called Grafe versus Chemical Lehman, and in that case, an employee had an arbitration for uh, some kind of retaliatory discharge and, and a, a litigation about um, disability leave and whether or not they were properly played disability leave. And there the court said, no, you can bring in the arbitration award. It's perfectly fine. And here they tried to say, well, they're not really the same facts. They're not. That was an employment relationship. This is different. And I, I don't, I think that's a, Distinction without a difference, in my opinion. And I, I think this is getting hyper-technical about the fact that this the, the this dispute is one contract, that dispute is another contract. It's the same parties, almost the same, almost the same transaction, same facts, same people negotiating. Uh, I I also disagree with that. But, yeah, but they say, you know, jurors are likely to, to infer something from the findings. Uh, isn't that the whole point? I mean, that is the whole point. Yes, there's yes, the the jurors. Yeah. Yeah. They say the jurors might give a lot of credibility or credence or defer to the findings of a professional fact finder like an arbitrator. Right. I mean, that's the whole point to help the jury decide. Uh, but I think this case really highlights and underlines the, the fact that, you know, the rules of evidence are almost always decided by the trial court. And, and it's always good to say that the, the court of appeal is going to reverse or something like that. But you really can't rely on that. And because of the abuse of discretion standard of most appeals, because of the rules, it's pretty hard to look at things that way. It's like the judge is going to make the rules up as he or she goes along with respect to the case. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our last case today. Our uh, last case. Yeah. It's uh, Aldea Dos Vientos versus Cal Atlantic Group. It's out of the second district court of appeal, division six. And uh, it has to do with condominium associations uh, in construction defect lawsuits and the arbitration agreements that are often found in these uh, condo and developer co- condo association and developer relationships. And let's start by just saying that that any decision, published decision that comes out of the sixth division of 
Uh, the Second District Court of Appeal in California is almost always worth reading, particularly if they're written by Justice Gilbert, who's a writer himself. Um, they believe in brevity in that dis- division, and they're always, almost always a little humorous, especially if Justice Gilbert writes it. So this case is no exception, um, and it involves a, a condominium association suing for construction defects. And Sean, I'm going to give you the ultimate gift today of telling all of our listeners the opening line. Sure, it starts by saying that condo projects have three phases, planning, building, and the lawsuit. Right, funny. And uh, it's funny because there is some truth to that, and I've brought um, a number of construction defect cases involving condos in the past. So there's some truth to that, but then um, what this case is is a classic construction defect case. And the facts are... um, in my opinion, nothing short of bizarre, because apparently, according to the CCNRs, which stands for what, Shant? Uh, covenants, something, and restrictions? <laughs> well, right? we'll leave it at that. Um, that run with the land, and they're a part of, this, of the condominium association. The CCNRs require that if you're going to commence any kind of proceeding against the, um, the builder, it has to be an arbitration. And they before they commence it, they have to have 51% of the association members vote to arbitrate the dispute. So what happened here? So uh, the condo association sues the developer, um, and then it goes to arbitration because that's required under the agreement. But then the uh, developer, the defendant, raises an affirmative defense and argues that you don't have a 51% vote. So what happens next? Then the arbitrator, nope. Um, nope. Oh, before yeah, before the arbitrator even takes a look at it, the condo association goes back and gets a overwhelming ninety nine, more than ninety nine percent vote. Everyone's on board. Then the arbitrator looks at it and says, "Nope, I'm dismissing it because you have a lack of uh, the requisite membership vote before you commenced arbitration." Before you commence, so right. it's a trap for the unwary. So the right. arbitrator dismissed the action and the court entered judgment in favor of the developer against the association. Case over before one fact was heard involving apparently $5.6 million of alleged construction defects. So the court looked at this, and the first thing they looked at was something called the Davis-Sterling Act, which is the act that governs condominium or, or multiple um uh, resident kind of developments, right? With the CCNR. Yeah, and, and the court highlights the fact that, look, the legislature has been very c- careful and clear here in laying out the requirements for uh, for these types of agreements and what call, uh, passes muster, really. It, it cites examples like really long statute of limitations. Um, the, the act specifically prohibits enforcement of unreasonable provisions in the contract, not just when it comes to arbitration, but any type of unreasonable provision. So the legislature has been very clear about what they want in these contracts, and they've given a lot of protections to the uh, homeowners associations here. Right. And and these protections include the fact that um, the developer doesn't have veto power over claims against it, which is what this obviously is trying to create. They, the court also pointed out that the fourth DCA in California found the exact opposite result on a case called Branches Neighborhood Corporation versus Cal Atlantic. And the six says, we specifically disagree. We don't, we're not going to follow that. We don't think that's the proper interpretation. And finally, they looked at legislation that became effective January 1st, 
2020, which um, really would have made all of this uh, improper and unconscionable. And the, um, the defendant in the case said, well, the case was final here, and you can't use that new legislation to help you anyways. And the Court of Appeal disagreed with that, and they said, well, the arbitration wasn't final for a number of reasons, but even if we did find that that, we still find that on the facts presented to us, the arbitration award never should have been confirmed in the first place. So we don't need that particular new statute. So that's it. That's our cases today. Very exciting stuff. Uh, We hope you enjoyed that. If you have any questions about all these arbitration issues, we deal with it often. So feel free to reach out with us or if you have any ideas or thoughts to share. We like hearing your feedback. Check us out online, kbklawyers.com. We're trying to put on seminars. And if you're on lockdown when you're hearing this, we're trying to put on webinars. uh, And we'd love to have you join. We'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, thanks for tuning in.